Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. Hello, and thanks for joining us again. It's uh, your socialist brother, Cyrus, here with Christian brother, Chase. Chase, how are we doing today? I'm excellent. I think you're going to get some whiplash, listener. Uh, from Jason Yates to our guest today, you're going to get harangued, if that's the proper word. So we need to, we need to ease you into this a little bit. And bring you into our worlds because our necks are hurting ourselves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. For for two people that have you know sort of similar perspectives on some things, just really end up with wildly different perspectives on others. But before we get into that, Chase, how's the baby, man? It's uh, just past a month old now at this point. Yeah, Kato Duke Capo. You know, here's my problem. So he was born three weeks early, <laughs> and now that we're like a month in, he's not looking people in the eye when they're talking to him. And he's not covering his mouth when he sneezes. I don't know when to stop cutting him slack. So, yeah, I mean, he's had he's had a three week head start on other babies, essentially. To, right. He should. I mean, all of a sudden he's going to, you know, think he can't pay rent to live here. So I don't know what's yeah. going to happen. Um, so what are you doing to what are you doing to ameliorate that? Well, you know what? So it's interesting. You know, there's a bit of a um, difference between me and Samantha. Yes, uh, you could say that. I mean, I think at first glance, most people might think you guys are somewhat opposites, but the reality is Samantha is very type A uh, and you are type A plus plus. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that not necessarily a compliment, uh, sure. but uh, does lead to some some fireworks at family functions. At Casa de Capo. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to jump in. <laughs> so we had the Texas, you know, cold storm. I wanted to put his feet in the snow, sorry, put our feet in the snow to sort of experience that together and begin to build, you know, critical character building blocks. Samantha was not taken by that idea and uh, <laughs> just trying to get him used to the harshness of, uh, of, of reality. Is that, well, sort of the idea? you know, just a little, just a, just a second or two of like, you know, and then there was a thunderstorm. And I wanted to be outside with him for that. Again, that was a strikeout. So, um, you know, <laughs> we had some no friends go. come visit and they're pretty hardcore. He's special forces and she's, you know, uh, anyway, they were able to get the baby steps in the right direction. So today, Cato Duke and I were out power washing the, uh, the driveway, raking some leaves. You know, they got me like a, you know, a militarized baby carrier. Um, <laughs> so like, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, he fell asleep right in it. So good for him. That's, that's um, great. Yeah. yeah so that's... we're making steps in the right direction. He's above baby weight. We're good. We're, we're doing good. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Well, otherwise, yeah, not too much going on in the world. And by that, I mean, there's a million things at once. Right. Um, yeah. You've been stirred up about a few things. Pro act. We talked Tucker a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk. We'll talk some pro acts. The, the Tucker thing is, is more funny than anything to me, because of anyone who's actually been in the military, uh, when it's accused of being woke, I think that would be a, a little bit of a hyperbole. I'll say that. But yeah, it's going to be really funny to me over the next few uh, over the next few years to see conservatives start to call for military cuts 
Uh, oh, you because, think so? Yeah, yeah, because you know they're gonna start doing this whole identity politics culture war thing, you know, as they as they do with the government. But now, what's part of the government more than the U.S. military? So yeah, you know, just just look out for it. Is all I'm saying. It's, if your it's logic holds, out. that will play. Yeah, no, um, indeed. You know, there are a lot of people that got really stirred up about that, and I am trying not to fall into the social media trap. Hence, we're bringing on a friend of ours to help us with social media because, man. Um, what a time dragon, but you know yeah. what? It, it, it kind of gets to that. I don't want to really talk too much about it, but there's a lot of nerves around that bone, you know, Tucker talking about how China is investing in the masculinity of their military and how, you know, we're not investing in the femininity of ours. And yeah. it's quite tough to sort out what I will say as Christian brother, as I've really tried to apply myself to biblical masculinity and trying to be a better man. I think the, 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 the masculinity Tucker is sort of referring to is my throwaway comment is a bit of a 1950s fear-based regressive masculinity that is like not necessarily biblically based. So, well, um, I think it just goes to show sort of that, like the, you know, Tucker tries to paint himself as like a working class, a friend of the working class an advocate for them. But what he really means by that is just like, this elitist sort of conception of what working class values are, but it's very curious to me because I was looking it up and I don't watch Tucker that, you know, that much except when dad sends me clips or whatever else, you know, I looked up like, okay, well, that's interesting. He's been talking about that. Like this advocate for the working class has, has he commented at all on the, you know, unionization effort at Amazon, the, the president and people as varied as the president and Marco Rubio have both offered, you know, tentative support to, uh, and he hasn't said anything. And I think that's, you know, maybe a, a decent transition into our episode today, um, because I think we have on someone who is an advocate for the working class. Yes. Sorry, uh, interruption. If you're yeah. interested in masculinity, we have a, one or two, uh, at least one solid masculinity episode. Go check it out. I've got my own thesis on what it makes, how to become a man. You'll love it. Cyrus, I'm excited to talk about Russ. If anybody gets me to point my political boat in a different direction. It'll be like people like Russ, you know what, from what it's worth in one conversation to my Christian brothers and sisters out there, just the way he speaks our conversations, you know what? um, I think he's got the bona fides of the Holy spirit inside of him. And you know what had a a genuine conversion and, and has a, and, and had a thirst for, for the Holy spirit. And you know what? So I'm motivated by that. And I thought you mentioned it, Cyrus, and just like us sort of, reflecting on our post-rust conversation was like he seamlessly weaves his faith in his politics and that is really convincing and that's something that i've got to really like ooh, ooh, did you know i'm checking his assumptions it's making me really slow down and listen to the man yeah i think like when we sort of started this podcast our hope was to see if it's possible to have people like that uh, in a way to, to build those bridges and, you know, not that even that, not even 20 episodes in, we talked to someone who's done it in such a way that I think is a really great model for anyone who's interested in those types of things. And yeah. And, and, and to that, I think we, to the, to the Christian who thinks socialism is evil or doesn't understand socialists, listen to Russ to the socialist who has walked away from Jesus. <laughs> um, <laughs> or to that, you know, what doesn't understand people or, uh, doesn't or just understand. doesn't think that Christians can hold opinions that are non-reactionary. Not even know? that, man. To the socialist who 
has a curiosity about, about God and wants a relationship with the God who created you in the universe, right? To that person, listen to Russ, because he moved closer to God and, and moved closer to Jesus. And even to the person who, who doesn't really consider, you know, asking for God for the curiosity uh, and the divine spark as a Quaker or a friend, or as Russ would say, that is in you. So, yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but he takes a non-traditional path to his deeply held beliefs. And I think that was, you know, really fascinating to me, too, because it did seem like he came about it. You know, obviously nothing is independent of your environment, but that it was a it was a personal expression. Yeah. And so for that, in this first episode, there'll be two parts. You're really going to hear is socialist Christian uh, weaving integration together. And then you're also going to hear a really great narrative on labor politics. So enough of me previewing. Let's get into Russ. Yeah, bottom line, I think it was challenging to both Chase and I from both a religious perspective, from a political perspective, and I hope that you uh, feel the same way. So without any further ado, Russ. We have with us Russ Weiss Irwin. He is a member of and an activist in the Boston Teachers Union. He's a deacon at First Baptist Church of Dorchester, Mass., and he was a former uh, member of the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America National Political Committee. Russ, how are we yeah. doing today? I'm great. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Russ, Beautiful. to a Christian in the South where I currently reside or out in the West where we grew up, you might as well be a unicorn, uh, a socialist and a Christian. And so I just want to sort of gawk at you. Thank you for joining. Super excited. Uh, we're interested. Uh, thanks for you know doing some homework and listening to us. How did you get this way? What happened? I'm just fascinated about your backstory and your politics here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, thanks for asking. And, um, you know, thanks for having me on, like I said. And I think I actually, I like I was saying before we got started, I, I, I really, when I was listening to the first couple episodes of the podcast, I really feel like I really identify with both of you in a lot of different ways. Um, I'm right in between you in, in terms of age. I think one of the episodes you mentioned how old you each were on September 11th <laughs> and I was in fourth grade. So I think I'm a little younger than Chase, a little older than Cyrus. Yeah. And right. uh, so I, I'm kind of, I, we have that in common. Um, I grew up in the Boston area and I grew up in a family that was very politically liberal, but kind of ambiguous, both in terms of our class and in terms of our faith. So my father is one of the most deeply moral people um, that I have ever met in my life. And he's a deeply committed atheist. Um, he's like, sees himself as kind of a, an ethical humanist. And he's very, and he's like, you know, deeply committed to that. Um, whereas my mother is a Quaker and is very serious about it. And so both of them, I think, had you know, not terrible, but like not positive experiences with um, mainline Protestantism when they were kids going to like Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist type of churches. Both of their families moved around a lot. So growing up, um, my mother went to Quaker meeting. Um, she would take me. My dad would sometimes go. He didn't, you know, he's, he's not a Quaker. He doesn't identify with it. He liked the Quaker people. He got along with them. Um, but he was very clear on like, nope, but don't believe in God. I don't, you know. And that was an open kind of conversation in our, in our home. In terms of class, I, sometimes I feel like my parents were like the sort of the, the typical millennials before, they, before there were millennials. Right. Before it got cool. <laughs> right. So they, um, 
Right. So they, they um, both are, you know, like well-educated. They both have graduate degrees, but they didn't have like standard steady jobs, you know, all the time. My dad worked as an adjunct professor. And I, at one point I sat down and counted and he worked at, I think, 11 different universities over the course of my childhood. And so there were times when he didn't have a job and there were times when he had like four jobs at the same time and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And my mother worked um, on and off as a freelance writer and sometimes as an editor and she would have a job with a publishing company for a little bit and so forth. So they took education very seriously and they had a lot of it, but we didn't have, you know, like a lot of economic security and stability. And I think our, our like, our fortunes as a family kind of rose and fell with the economy. And, um, you know, as I was growing up, but, and this is kind of a connection with you, um, Chase, like I, you know, you talked about how your parents took really seriously, like saving up the money for you to go to a, a, a private Christian school. My parents did the same thing. And I went to a Quaker school in the Boston area, which, you know, Quaker schools generally are, there's a lot of them out there in the world. I don't know, maybe not as much in the West, but certainly like in the Northeast there are. And, you know, most of the people who go to them are not Quakers. They're, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, like different religious backgrounds, but, you know, they're considered pretty good private schools. And so I went going as a Quaker child and I was able to go with financial aid. But most of the kids that I went to school with were just upper middle class kids from or, you know, or really upper upper class kids from the Boston area. So there were people whose parents were lawyers and surgeons and tenured professors and, you know, all this and had houses in Italy and all this kind of stuff. And my family was not poor, but we had nothing like that. (laughs) Like our vacation was like, you know, go to a ski place on in the summer when it's cheap and you can, you know what I mean? Like that's, you know, and or like camping and right camping. Exactly. That was it. And so I was really conscious of class from a young age because I was like in this environment where there were a lot of people who had a lot more money than me. And I was, I was very conscious of that and a lot more stability too. Cause there were times when we had money, but it was also, it was like inconsistent. And so that was, so I think that those two things both kind of helped me get to where I am today, which is so, but I said at the beginning that my parents were, were, were very politically liberal. And so we would go to, protests. I remember being at a vigil. I think one of my earliest memories is being at a vigil on the governor's lawn in Massachusetts to protest against um, someone being executed with a death penalty that my parents were there. You know what I mean? And I remember like that, like made a big impact on me as a kid. And I think it was, I'm not sure, but I think it was unsuccessful, but like, those were the kinds of things that I was like brought to as a kid. And so by the early two thousands, when I was in high school or like mid two thousands, I guess, you know, I was getting very conscious of kind of what was going on in the wider world. And, you know, one of the big things that was going on was the war in Iraq. And another big thing that was going on in the Boston area was there was a wave of, um, you know, gun violence among youth. And a lot of kids my age were getting shot and killed on like a regular basis. Um, It was like a regular headline. And meanwhile, kids from the Boston area were getting killed in Iraq and Afghanistan on a pretty regular basis. Mm. And, I remember just noticing at that time, like, oh, but it's not everybody. Like in this whole city, it's like the black and Latino neighborhoods and the poor white neighborhoods where, you know, where it's always the the headline is that, you know, oh, a kid from, and I, I don't need to say the names of the towns because it won't mean anything yeah. to people that aren't from Massachusetts. <laughs> 
but it was like, oh, wow. Okay. So it's, it's never the kids from these places, like where my classmates are from, but it's always the mm. kids from these other places that are dying, whether it's dying in the street or dying on the other side of the world. And I think that was another thing that started to get me thinking politically um, at that when I was a teenager. And I would go to protests. And I think at one of the anti-Iraq war protests that I went to as a teenager, I got into talking to someone from like a small socialist sect who was like selling newspapers or whatever the case may be. There you go. Well, you know, we we had socialism kind of... and liberation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so we, we had some yeah. kind of conversation. And that person said to me, well, look, if, you know, if all the working class people in this country came together and stopped working at the same time in an organized way, we could do anything. We could stop a war. We could say everyone has to have health care. We could say, you know, we could, you know, we could stop racism. We could do like, there's all these things that we could do. We actually, the people who are getting killed, the people who are worst affected by you know, health things, the people who have the worst jobs, the people who are the most disrespected, who are most ignored, are actually the most powerful people in our entire society. And like, I think I heard that when I was like 13 or 14 years old. And that to me was then and still is the most exciting idea that I've almost it's ever Epiphany heard. moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just they don't know it. <laughs> right. They just don't know exactly. how powerful they are. Exactly. And I think that in a way, that's a very Christian idea. Because when Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth, you know, the last shall be first. That is to me, the idea of the labor movement and of the socialist movement, to be honest, the idea that it is those who are most put upon, most marginalized, most disposed of and disregarded that actually have the power to drive history forward and create a completely new world. That is like, to me, you know, I, it's, it's electric. And so I think from that point on, I was more and more interested in, in labor movement, in unions. And that this was also a period of time in Boston where there were a bunch of big strikes um, of, of warehouse workers, of security guards. There were, you know, different things that were going on in Boston at the time. And I was kind of like showing up to things, getting involved. And around the same time, I also um, was getting really active in Quaker things. I was like, going way more my mom's way than I had my dad's way. I, um, I was, you know, getting involved. I was going to like Quaker retreats, like every, every month I was joining committees. I was. Is the, the food at a Quaker retreat normal or is it. A <laughs> Exclusively oatmeal, only oatmeal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Okay. Not allowed to eat anything else. <laughs> um, and so. You know, not a lot of Quakers where we're from. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I imagine. Well, not really a lot of Quakers anywhere. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but so, and I think, and I was getting to be more spiritual and I got to know like some other teenagers who, who went to different Quaker, Quakers call a church a, a meeting, um, who went to different Quaker meetings. And I, I agree with that, by the way, church is in you, not in a building. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Um, and so the, I was talking to other teenagers and some of whom were like, you know, they were like reading the Bible a lot. They were like praying a lot, which, you know, that wasn't really how my parents did Quakerism. And so I was getting more interested in reading the Bible. I was getting more interested in like, wow, like there's these people who are having like religious experiences. They're getting direct communication from God about what they should be doing with their life. And that felt very powerful to me. And so I think at this, you know, around when I was like, 
16, 17 years old, like all of this kind of stuff was happening around me. Okay, the working class changed the world. Okay, people are talking to God. God's talking to people. Like, okay, that's important. All this stuff is exciting. And I think that in a way, I'm just kind of been on the same road that I've been on ever since then. It's just gotten to more specific places. So again, when I was a teenager, I started working in restaurants like a lot of people do. And I think it really struck me, my first experiences of like wage labor, of like earning a wage, both the kind of excitement of like, I've got money. This is mine. I earned this. Like the, <laughs> the, the power of that, that feels like so great. And like, oh, I'm part of a team. I can do things like, you know, okay, here's the bartender doing this. And I've got to, you know, have the glasses ready. For and you know, what's, what's really good about being part of a workplace and feeling productive and all that. But then also the like within a restaurant, And I know, Cyrus, you work in restaurants, you know this, like there's turnover, like people come in and everyone's like friends and then they get fired because they screwed something up or, you know, they move and it's like, oh, you know, there are immigrant people that I'm working with and they get deported. Like, it's just like, there's like all of this kind of way in which it sort of feels like, oh, people are so indispensable to this operation. And then it's like, oh, but they're also completely replaceable. You know, like it's Mm. that sort of the way in which I felt like, oh, people are not being treated like people, but not the way that I've been told and raised that people should be treated as, you know, children of God, as, you know, Quakers would say, like someone with the light of God within them. And instead, people are being treated in this extremely instrumental way of like, they're here to, to do a job. If someone else can do that job better, you know, if the like, if we can figure out a way to pay them less, great. And that I think was really like, eye-opening for me about capitalism in a way that um, was just sort of like ever more radicalizing. So Uh, Russ, I want to make sure I'm understanding you here because you've really given us some, some good things already. I've heard two things that seem counter narrative uh, about your story and about your religious political beliefs. One, you talking Jesus, the meek shall inherit the earth and the sermon on the Mount and that's a little bit more of a lifting up and a, hey, let's all do better together. A lot less threatening than a, let's pull the rich down. Uh, they're coming for your taxes and for your religious political beliefs, like what I might hear on some news outlets. The second is a bit of a pro-productivity, teamwork, work ethic kind of thing. Um, when you say like, hey, yeah, I like being a part of a, a shift and working, listening to you know, maybe some talk radio that hates socialism. I quickly think all you people freaking just want to take people's money. So those two things I've, I've already stand out to me, but you just said you're sort of like feeling against in maybe in your spirit, this like experience that people are cogs and the dollar is ruling over maybe some gray situations. Is, is that right? Yeah. And I think it is, it is interesting. I completely, I, I I appreciate what you're pulling out there in terms of the idea about work. I think that, you know, and I'm sure Cyrus would say this too. Like if you look at Marx and, you know, he's the granddaddy of the socialists, right? Um, When you look at Marx, he says work. And this is, I don't know, maybe not super well translated German or whatever, but he says (laughs) to work and like engage with the world is part of human, or I think he says man's species being, which is sort of like, what does that mean? But, you know, it's like what makes us human beings is the fact that we work, 
not necessarily that we work in the kind of alienated way under capitalism, but that we can interact with the world around us and make things. And I, boy, that makes so much sense to me because I we think- We change nature and nature can change us. And it's in a, in a circle. Yeah, the, the, the idea that, that what makes us human is the way that we express our creativity and our, and our skill and our, and our intelligence. And, you know, I might push back on Marx a little bit and be like, oh, it's not only humans that do that. Like, you know, we, now we know about animals that are like tool users and what, but at the very least, that's one of the profound things about being a human being is like, is, is the, the desire to feel productive and be part of things and, and to work socially and to create. But I think that then there's a way that work gets organized under capitalism that can feel you know, like just what I was saying, like alienating, that it, it feels like, oh, you're, you're part of a system that you don't control. You make stuff that it's not for your, your own use. It's for somebody else's use. And you even can get ground up and, and like break your body basically. And like you yourself can get used up for other people's profit. And I would say that I think the idea that socialists are against work is not unfounded because socialists are against work the way it's organized now. But I think socialists are in favor of work if it's controlled and organized for people's free development and expression and creativity, because that's what makes us human. Yeah, I think I think one way that we've kind of lost sight of what work is under capitalism in a way is that it's us selling our labor to someone. We're, we're selling our time and labor to someone. They're not hiring us. We're actually selling ourselves in the marketplace. But it's to ends that we don't really have control over. One time you could opt out of the system by, you know, growing your own potatoes or carrots or whatever and selling them in the market, but that's not really an option anymore. So you're not only are you selling your labor, but you're compelled to sell your labor. And that's why I feel like it's very important for, you know, labor unions to exist, um, to protect those people who don't really have any other choice in the matter. Yeah. And that's a great segue to kind of the next part of my story, which is, you know, I was sort of seeing what was going on with the labor movement in Boston. I was starting to think about that stuff. I was working in restaurants. And then a union drive got started at a hotel where I was working. So um, I, I was working at the hotel. People started talking about organizing a union. And I immediately saw how incredibly, how the mask just fell off of management in the way that they wanted to smash that crack down on it, divide people by race, by language, by age, set people against each other, lie to people in order to keep us disunited and to try to stop us from organizing together. And I saw how the courage that it took people to stand up together. That was something that really got me thinking about like, why are they so scared? Um, why are they so scared <laughs> of us being together and cooperating? What is it that they're scared of us being able to do? And also like, how deeply immoral, like, is it to, you know, to turn people against each other and, and undermine people's attempt to, you know, come together on a fair basis. We did not succeed. People got fired. It was a, there was a lot of suppression and whatever with it. And eventually I left the job because I was moving to New York to go to college. And so I left, not because I was fired for organizing and you know, not because I quit out of frustration, but just because like that was the next part of my life. Time to move on. Right. Um, well, that's one of the biggest problems with uh, like working in a service industry in general and so many jobs now are service industry oriented, but 
all my coworkers are college students or they're in high school or they're like you said, they're immigrants and they're probably they're transient. They don't they don't think of themselves as that being their job. Yeah. And so I think that that was like so. But it was a, it was an experience that I learned a lot from. And so then when I moved to New York City, I kept working. I went to college in New York. I kept working in um, food service. I worked in a, another restaurant, Manhattan. I started working at an airport um, doing food service there. And I kept trying to organize. Occupy Wall Street happened. I was a little involved with that. There were a lot of other restaurant workers there. Started organizing with other people. And I had further experiences with unions. I tried to organize a union again. That was also <laughs> failed. But... It ended up being successful later on. Those people did end up winning a union years later. So I think some of these things are like you, you sow seeds and you don't necessarily reap the yeah. fruit. But I kept sort of having more organizing experiences and learning more about um, all of these things. I, I did a degree in political science and I learned more about the history of the labor movement. I kept going to Quaker meeting in New York City, but I never clicked with one particular Quaker meeting there. Um, and so I kind of drifted away from Quakerism and I increasingly felt like this spiritual hunger. I needed to connect with a community of people who were like trying to listen to God together and that I, I missed having that. And so kind of like Cyrus, I spent a semester living in Mexico and that really hey. um, was a key moment for me because that's. How we prevent socialism, keep people from going to Mexico. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, because, and I think in three ways, and this is kind of, kind of strange. First, I saw that there were a lot of people in Mexico who, who were young people like me, who were, you know, college students with sort of similar beliefs that I had, but who were in socialist organizations, which I had considered joining a socialist organization, but they all seemed extremely corny to me, honestly. Like they all seemed like, you know, they're sort of like, play acting at some kind of like, you know, like, Oh, oh we're the revolutionary party. Right. communism. And it's like, okay, I'll, I'm waiting for that revolution. I'm setting my watch to it. <laughs> Nothing against D and D, but you might as well be doing D and D right after it. <laughs> I, I, seriously. I mean, I remember having this strong sense of like, cause you know, I would, because I was involved with the union, I met people who were, you know, called themselves socialists and anarchists or whatever. And sometimes I would go to events that they had, and I remember like walking to one and the guy being like, oh, you're new. Who are you? And I was like, I'm Russell. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm X, Y, Z. I'm a Maoist. And I was like, you're a Maoist? Like, <laughs> also like, that's how you introduced yourself. <laughs> and I just, I just remember feeling like, oh, this stuff is ridiculous. Like, yeah. And, but in Mexico, I, I met people who were like serious people who were organizers, who were doing exactly the kind of stuff that I had been doing in the United States around organizing, like, you know, against tuition hikes and in support of workers and all this kind of stuff. But they were in socialist groups and the socialist groups didn't seem goofy. They seemed like serious organizations. So that was one thing. And it made me think like, oh, well, it's not like Mexicans are just different than us. Like this could exist in the United States. So that was kind of the first thing. The second thing was, if you go to a country that has been so abused and exploited by the United States as Mexico has, and which is certainly not alone among countries um, in that way, I could name a dozen at least, you really have to stop and think about everything that you, that you think and know about your own country. Because the fact of the matter is <laughs> we stole half <laughs> of their country and 
to this day, like, I mean, I met a lot of Mexican people when I was living in Mexico who had lived in the United States and been deported back to Mexico. I mean, it's like, when you think about the fact that, you know, under Obama, I think there was something like 2 million deportation. I can't, that, that number sounds so crazy. I can't remember even what it, what it is, but like the degree of deportations that Obama did and, you know, and Bush did some before that and, you know, and going back, but like so many people are affected by that. And so you have people who grew up in Houston or San Diego or Denver or Chicago who now live in Mexico city, which they had never known, but like, they're stuck there because, you know, their country, you know, which they weren't born in, but they like grew all up in, just kicked them mm. out, you know? Yeah, they have and no like, alternative. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I could go on and on, but like, if you spend some time in Mexico and talk to people, like you really have to stop and look and say, in what righteous and moral way can one country treat another country that way? And so it really turned me a lot against U.S. foreign policy and the way that the U.S. I mean, I had already been to Iraq war protests, but like, I think it made me think about that as like, not like, oh, we did one war that was wrong. It was like, oh, there's a whole system here that's hundreds of years old and goes across every political party and every presidential administration that is deeply unjust and that like has to be addressed in a more profound way. And then the other thing that happened was in the neighborhood where I lived in Mexico City, I would go by after my classes every day, I would go and get groceries from this guy who had like a little corner grocery store. And he was a Christian. And he would talk to me every day when I would get my groceries, we would sit and talk about the Bible. And he had so many interesting things to say to me. And I really think, I mean, what a strange coincidence that I would happen to have to pass by him is thousands of grocery stores. You know what I mean? But like, I formed such a strong relationship with this guy and it left me feeling like when I go back to the United States, I have to join a church. I have to get involved with a community of Christians because I can't do this on my own. I need to be around people who are praying, who are reading the Bible, who are thinking through what God wants from them. Because I saw like what that meant to this man and the like spark that he kind of, you know, was sort of encouraging in me. And I felt like, okay, I, I need to, I need to be in a church. And, and I also felt like I need to be in a socialist organization because I can't like, and was so it just like a recognition of like the importance of community, you know, especially when you're at a different place where you've always grown up and lived and you're just like seeing and feeling the need for those communal bonds. I can't explain it. I mean, I think that Chase might get it. There's something that I felt like he, I saw something in him of God and that he saw something in me of God, that we were connected in this way, that he was basically, he was like letting me know that he knew that I could be saved, that I could walk with God and have this relationship with God that Jesus came to earth to allow us all to have. Um, Mm. And that I did not have, that I like did not have, and I so wanted to have. And the more I talked with him and saw that, the more I wanted to have it. And so Back to the United States, I joined the DSA, which was pretty small and inactive at that point. It was just like 2014. DSA was a lot smaller then. I ran for the National Political Committee because I was active and I had ideas and it wasn't that competitive. (laughs) 2015, it wasn't like, now if you want to be in the National Political Committee for the DSA, it's like a big thing. Like you have to, you know, you've got to win hundreds of votes and talk to thousands of people. At that time, it was like, 
way more low key. Um, Be like, so, hey, does anyone want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> literally. Um, and so I got on the National Political Committee and I was part of seeing like DSA like grow from 5,000 members when I joined to like 8,000 when I got elected to the National Political Committee to like 25,000 by the time I left. I mean, you can imagine like how crazy that is. And then 90,000 today, which is just a like incredible growth. And it also, I, I graduated college. My wife and I moved to New Jersey so she could go to graduate school. I started working in a cafeteria. I think that in, you know, in that work, I really, I had tried to organize unions before um, Mm. (laughs) unsuccessfully. And so I definitely understood the value of unions, but I think it was in that job that I really started to understand what it really means, what a difference it makes to have a union, even yeah. not a super active union. I think sometimes socialists and other leftists have a kind of a critique of unions that say, oh, well, unions are good if they're like really democratic and militant and willing to go on strike and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, a lot of unions are corrupt and they're, you know, they're like totally enmeshed in the Democratic Party and they um, got mobbed out at one point. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. they're, they're like, you know, complicit in capitalism. So I think that there's a sort of a left-wing critique of unions that sort of like unions are good if they're, if they're really radical. But I would actually make the case that even, even, the, even the like really passive kind of corporatized or sort of like inactive or passive unions are still way better than no union at all. And I think my union that I had in New Jersey I really appreciate the leaders that I worked with there and stuff, but it was a small union with not a lot of capacity and it was no, you know, no, no socialist or anything would say, Oh yeah, that's the model for what a union should be like. What my, what my union in New Jersey was, but that union was able to bargain such that people doing jobs in that cafeteria were making a living wage who, when somebody who was doing the same job of like cashier, dishwasher, whatever, across the street at a independent restaurant, would be making half as much money or less. Right. That union made sure that we had healthcare and dental benefits and stuff that are life-changing. I mean, like really life-changing for people to have those kind of benefits and the chance to retire and protection so that if, you know, you couldn't be bullied out of a job by a manager who didn't like you or, you know, for that matter, discriminated against because of your gender or race or, you know, whatever, sexual orientation or disability status, which those kinds of discrimination are illegal by, you know, state laws in a lot of states and federal laws, certain of those, but that's incredibly hard to um, actually enforce if you don't have a union. Because all the boss needs to say is, no, I didn't fire him because he's black. I fired him because he's bad at his job. But if you have a union that has a just cause protection that can make sure that when someone gets fired, the boss has to show that they went through the steps that they needed to go through and gave you a warning and gave you a chance to change and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you actually have protection that like makes those theoretical protections against discrimination real. So I think that's one of the things that like even a, even not the greatest union is still a really important difference from not having. Yeah. For, for those of you who have never, who have ever worked at a job where you've been like, man, there's just no one here to look out for me when, I am feeling like I'm under attack or unfairly being criticized or unfairly being punished. And I think that's you know, probably that's at the very least what a union should be able to do. Yeah. But I, I want to get into that a little bit. And I do want to get back into your work with the teachers union. But yeah. before we get there, I just feel like 
it's a good opportunity to explore a little bit of that history and how labor ended up in the state it is today. You know, obviously, we're not the first people to recognize the importance of the labor movement. Um, and it's been has a long and storied history that really isn't taught much in the American education system for reasons that I'm sure our audience can guess to. But I, I guess like, you know, things like the 40 hour work week or weekends or holidays, these things that make our jobs somewhat livable, those didn't come out of nowhere. So can you tell us a little bit about where those things came from and, and how we ended up in the place we are today with the labor's relationship to capital? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, when we think about sort of how did we get here with the kinds of workplace protections, I think there's a bumper sticker that sometimes you see that says the labor movement, the folks that brought you the weekend. And that's true. It's also true that without the labor movement, we wouldn't probably have public schools for, for one thing and many other things that people like. Basically, as long as there's been wage labor on a large scale in the United States, there have been unions. First unions got started at like the beginning of the 19th century, like 1820s. A lot of them didn't last that long because capitalism would go through booms and busts and the labor movement would basically follow that. Like when there'd be a boom, unions would form, bust, they'd fall apart. Around the turn of the 20th century, we start to have like permanent unions that would last beyond one business cycle. And it was a lot of their agitation, you know, in, in, in the 19th century um, for stuff like the eight hour day, for the weekend, for the idea that everyone should be able to send their kids to school for free. For- That's like genesis of the AFL, right? American Federation of Labor, that, that whole time, that was part of their platform, generally speaking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and even the idea that working class people should be able to vote which is, I think, something that like, we, we, you know, there used to be property requirements for voting. And it was early unions in the in the early 19th century were involved with advocating for the idea that like, yeah, you shouldn't have to own land to vote. So I think that there's like a lot of things that people don't realize we, we really owe to the working class getting organized. It goes back to the first idea that I said of like, you know, that person in a protest telling me, like, hey, if we're organized, we could change anything. And the thing is, yeah. the working class isn't totally organized, but even one part of the working class being somewhat organized has been able to change a lot and make capitalism a lot more humane in the United States and around the world, certainly. So but the U.S.'s labor movement, I mean, is pretty unorganized in comparison to like European ones. So even with, you know, we're sort of a shadow of them and we've still accomplished a lot here and without with with no little sacrifice. Absolutely. I mean, people have, you know, lots of people have lost their lives fighting for like the labor rights that people have. Um, You guys are out West. I mean, there are amazing stories of miners and timber workers in Colorado, Arizona, Washington state, Montana, you know, going on strike and governors of those states calling out the national guard and massacring people, you know, organizers for the, the mine workers being lynched. Um, when they would get into a town, like really brutal, brutal, bloody stuff, which also, you know, there's also stuff in the East Coast, but I think some of what happened in the West is like on an even more extreme scale. So I think that like, it is important to keep that in context. I also think, I think Cyrus is exactly right. Like the labor movement here is not as strong as um, in a lot of other countries. And it's a whole field of study of like, why is that? And I think, you know, part of it, I think has to do with racism. And the fact that the U.S. working class has always and still is divided by race. And some unions have been important 
you know, vehicles to fight against that. Um, some of the more like left leaning and um, communist led and socialist led unions of the 1920s, 30s, 40s did a lot of important work around civil rights and trained a lot of people who became leaders in the civil rights movement later, um, helped to fund civil rights organizations in the 50s and 60s. But at the same time, lots of unions have also been incredibly racist and very like strong instruments for um, racial discrimination. And then because the working class is, is of all races and always has been in the United States, the racism of those unions has super weakened the labor movement because a lot of times it was very easy for employers in the United States to just bring in people of a different color or people of a different language and break a strike. And which, so I think that that's like, uh-huh. an that's an important piece of why labor has been weaker in the United States. Another important piece is the fact that the labor movement has not had its own political party in the United States, which is different than most countries in the world. A lot of countries kind of went through this thing of like, okay, in the 19th century, you get capitalism going and then workers start to form unions. And then those unions form labor federations. And then those labor federations form a political party. And then that political party becomes like one of the major parties. And then they're able to win a lot of reforms and, you know, whatever. In the United States, we went through those first few steps and then we're like, oh, we didn't form a political party. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of America's staunch opposition and leadership away from Soviet communism really purified any kind of labor politics or any kind of left politics from labor politics and from any kind of communist socialist doctrine. And Cyrus and I were really discussing before this that that seemed to be almost the Democratic Party's pivot around identity politics and departure from material politics. And just to kind of like break it down in another layman's terms, after America drove out labor politics, making things better for working class, giving things uh, more workers' rights, because that reeked of communism, they started focusing on identity politics. And we're basically at that today. There's not much, it seems, material politics a part of the Democratic Party, but there's a lot of identity politics. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, I think it's interesting because you're sort of talking about a bunch of different pieces of history, right? Like the kicking out of communists and socialists from unions was happening in the 40s and 50s. And I think the Democratic Party's turn away from the working class and labor is really something that happened in the 80s and 90s. So there's like 50 years of history in that, but I don't think they're unrelated. And so I think that I think you're right to draw a connection there, but I would be careful about sort of like two close of a generalizing yeah yeah well, well yeah i mean i wanted to get into a little bit too like you know the new deal was a product of labor unions and labor organizing mm-hmm. in my opinion that's that's pretty unequivocally true it was it was a compromise <laughs> from the extremely radical times and turbulence of the 30s and 40s and that sort of thing and you know obviously the democratic party i think that's part of the reason why we didn't have a labor party is because there was a candidate and a party that was willing to take on those reforms and those issues but then as time went on you know in the same way we've talked a little bit about christianity being captured by the republican party previous episodes and i think in much the same way the labor movement has been sort of captured by the democratic party obviously you know that that i'd like you said we don't want to overgeneralize but that how did we get from the time period of labor having a seat at the table in the new deal really being a player in making policy happen to sort of the 70s and then the 80s and the 90s where they were kicked out of the kicked out of the room more or less 
Yeah, I mean, I think that like, we should see the 30s and 40s and 50s where labor was sort of like a junior partner within the ruling class as pretty exceptional in US history because before the, before the New Deal, unions were illegal. And so <laughs> like it's, you know, it is like unions and working class organization has generally been threatening to the ruling class and the people who run both political parties and all that for most of the time. And it's like, I think what happened in the 30s and 40s was you had the example of workers overthrowing the government of Russia and setting up a communist state as like a, a real threat to the ruling class everywhere in the world. You had a level of labor militancy that was just like uncontrollable in the United States. And you had a relatively more like liberal, you know, lean of the Democratic Party than you had before that and that and then you had after that. And those three things kind of came together at the same time that made the ruling class, just like you said, feel like, okay, we got to, you know, we, we need to put some like release valves on all of this. Um, and workers were able to win huge things, social security, the National Labor Relations Act, which, you know, legalized unions, um, gave workers a limited right to strike, uh, or actually a pretty broad right to strike, but then it was walked back during the McCarthy era. And, and generally like won the working class, a lot of gains that honestly, we mostly have been like just sort of coasting downwards since right. then. So I wouldn't say like, oh, wow, what happened that like workers got less powerful? It's more like, wow, what happened that workers were really powerful for like 15 years? I think so that's the thesis that sort of I've been presented or that, that yeah. seems to make the most sense to me is that like we, they were sort of bought off in a way. Like you said, junior partner in the ruling class and the way they kept them a junior partner was by paying them more. Uh, or tying productivity to wages until they couldn't do that anymore. But by the time that they couldn't do that anymore in the 70s and, and 80s, you know, there was no more power left. There was no no real way to, to fight back against that. I think that unions were actually winning a lot of important things in the 40s and 50s and 60s. But I think, you know, it's really hard to like consistently fight against capitalism for decades. Yeah. And I think that like, but I do think that what's certainly still true is that even though the number of workers in unions and the percentage of workers in unions and the like political power of unions has all gone down basically continuously since the fifties, workers still fundamentally have the same power that we've always had, which is that we make things and we make everything. We make it so that the world can work so that the world like functions. And I think that you can see now, even right now in 2021, the ways in which workers still have the power to change things, right? You look at in 2018, when teachers in West Virginia and in Oklahoma and in Arizona and in Los Angeles and in Kentucky and in so many places from like super blue cities to super red state went on strike, they were able to win huge changes in terms of how their states worked. So that's a huge example. I think probably the most inspiring example to me is the fight for 15 that in 2012 fast food workers in New York city walked off the job and said, we should have a $15 minimum wage at that time, $15 minimum wage was totally unheard of as a demand. President Obama was talking about a $10 minimum wage and people were like, Whoa, Whoa. And that was, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And at that time that was like, a $10 minimum wage, I think, adjusted for inflation, 
in 2012 would have been like, I think it would have been the highest the minimum wage had ever been. I could be wrong on that, you know, and it depends on how you calculate and all that. But a $10 minimum wage would have been kind of high compared to what the federal minimum wage mostly has been in U.S. history. Yeah. Workers were like, no, we don't want a $10 minimum wage. We want a $15 minimum wage. And because we need that much money to live. And which for those counting at home is still like a salary of like $31,000 a year. Not a lot. (laughs) Right. But still way higher than the U.S. federal minimum wage has ever been um, at any point, even at the highest point, which I think was about 1968. And so, you know, if you adjust for inflation, obviously, you know, it was a dollar 50 or something, but in, in dollars in 1968. Yeah. But what's amazing is since that movement, since those strikes, we've seen more increases in the minimum wage for more workers than in any other period of time in U.S. history, just not at the federal level, because, you know, things have been frozen at the federal level, I think, because of like the Republican Party and, you know, lack of energy from the Democratic Party and whatever. Um, but in New York and California and Massachusetts and Illinois and even places like Florida um, on ballot initiatives, we've seen dramatic increases in the minimum wage. And at this point, with the Democrats in control of three branches of government, it seems like there will be some kind of increase to the federal minimum wage. We don't know yet exactly what that's going to be or what it's going to look like. There were some developments just a couple of days ago um, when we're recording this. But that is really something no politician carried that forward. Bernie Sanders jumped on the bandwagon, like once that was already had been going for like four yeah. years, but no politician came up with that. Workers came up with that, went on, took action together. And then over the past decade have been more successful than like almost any other social movement in the country in winning that. And I think that that gets at the fact that even in its diminished and reduced state, the labor movement and the working class still have incredible power in this country and around the world to win things that we need. You're going to get a lot of our post-game analysis at the back of part two. Cyrus, can you throw a quick fact check on that? Yeah, so just real quick, uh, Russ had mentioned some, he, he wasn't exactly sure about the figures between the deportations between Obama, Bush, Trump. So just real quickly here, this is from the Cato Institute, which no, I know is a libertarian think tank, but they're the most legitimate figures I could find, uh, Department of Homeland Security as well. Anyways, Bush deported just over 2 million people or about 250,000 a year. Obama, uh, just over 3 million people uh, at about 383,000 a year, just under 400. Trump was just over half a million people total and about 275,000 a year. And just my own uh, editorial on that, any article I looked up from a mainstream outlet said uh, that they admitted that Obama deported more people, but they all add the important caveat that context is everything. Just, you know, just an extra million people here, there just because of context. So thought that was funny. Shout out to CNN and MSNBC for that. (laughs) Uh, God bless them. Everybody needs prayer. Speaking (laughs) of prayer, Cyrus, is there anything I can pray for you for? Uh, You know, I, uh, geez. Yeah. Sleep would be great. Sleep. sleep. I know you're doing a lot of work people school you know what uh praying that you know as russ had this like sort of divine spark in that and and that curiosity that hunger for it and we mentioned that briefly in our last commerce combo or two yeah that that reignites um if i may yeah yeah uh, sure any anything uh going on with you 
Yeah. You know what, Cyrus, you or anyone else out there taking this paternity leave is allowing me to step back and question, you know, what do I, what do I want to do with my time? And I'm not sure right now. So it's a good soul search. I'm, I'm praying, please pray for peace and no peace and doors to open and doors to close. I'd love if one door opened and the rest closed. But, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's good to know at least if a door is closed, you know, one. that's right. You know, there's a lot of peace and doors closing. So yeah. anyway, um, right on, man. That, well, I will uh, be praying for that. And otherwise, always good to see your face. Love you, man. Love you, too. Talk soon. Are eternal, and this has been a contest over a principle. In this contest, brother has been arrayed against brother, father against son. It is for these that we speak. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in defense of our homes, our families, and posterity. This has been Cross of Gold. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank Sant Invictus for producing our intro and outro songs and uh, look forward to seeing you next time.